we're turning to the Word of God. Uh, we're going to hear the Word read. We're going to hear it preached. Uh, we're in this time of Advent here now, and we started last week going through Advent, a series on the book of Ruth. And so we are here in the, the second week of Advent. We are in the second chapter of Ruth this morning. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23. Before we, we read, before we listen, let's pray that the Spirit of God would be with us, uh, would be active among us here, and taking this word to form us then. Let's pray. Father, we are a people who are called before you by your word. You have revealed yourself to us through this word that you have given to your your people long ago, and it was applicable for them. It is just as applicable for us, for this is your truth, and it does not change. Lord, give us responsive hearts this morning, hearts that can respond because your spirit is living and active and goes forth with your word. We need him among us and at work this morning here. We pray that Jesus would be made known and clear here as well. We pray that you would be using this word to form us, to make us like you, God to point out the ways that we have failed and to also see your grace and forgiveness. Continue to mold us into the people who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Ruth chapter 2, this is the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to me, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, 
Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. Do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked. And said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young women, or by, by my young men, until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Amen. If you're new with us this morning or just, uh, just coming in here, when life for Naomi plummeted, It wasn't a crash and burn situation. It was a crash that continued its momentum into a skid. The crash had occurred when the bitter providence that she faced after leaving Israel to take refuge in Moab, that's that's when it occurred there, with the death of her husband, Elimelech, and then with the death of her two sons, Kilion and, it just totally escaped me, Malon. (laughs) Uh, with the, the death of her two sons there, and both of them, though, left childless as well. And the skid then continued as well as when she got back into Israel, along with Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who said that she would stick with her. But her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who also faced loss, the loss of her husband, and she also didn't bear any children. And Naomi comes back into the land and she says, don't call me by my name Naomi. Don't call me pleasant, which is what Naomi means. She says, call me Mara. Call me bitter. And Naomi and Ruth were left in desperation. They had no means of providing for themselves because both of them were widows. And they had no future for them either without having husbands or without having children or without having grandchildren that would then take care of them and could provide for them. And now the desperation of the future moves into their present situation because they're left with with the face, how are we going to obtain our daily bread? What about our everyday sustenance here? What about what we need to just survive and get through this week? Naomi and Ruth were facing real life and death desperation here in this time. The book of Ruth is a story about four characters, and all four characters are woven together. The three that we looked at last week were we had Naomi and Ruth. The third one was the Lord God. 
as he shows up in his providence behind all of this. He was the one there who was behind the loss and the bitter times that Naomi faced. But when he shows up in his providence, though, his providence also has an arc to it. It's not one merely of bitterness, but as we see through the, the, the story, in fact, even beginning here as we pick up on the story, there's a slow progression that goes through that moves from bitterness into blessing. And he uses our final character now who we are introduced to in this passage, the character of Boaz. We read right away that he's a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. That's not an insignificant detail for us. There is a foreshadowing that's involved here when it mentions that he's part of the the family and clan of Elimelech. It's to pick our interests, especially if we know a little something about Israelite law involving widows and loss and restoration. It's the idea of what is known as a kinsman redeemer, which was a hope that was given uh, by God uh, in, in the laws to Israel to give hope, to give a future to young widows. Now, that's not what's happening in this passage yet. We're going to start seeing that next week. So we're not going to get there. But there is this foreshadowing. But in the meanwhile, before that happens, the Lord's providence is on full display through this meeting between Ruth and Boaz. Now, they have a need for food. They're in the land here, right? They're back in Israel. They can't have been there for very long. And they start realizing, how are we to obtain something to eat? How are we going to get something to eat? How are we going to just live throughout this week? And God's answer that he had to Israel here for the widows and for the unfortunate was gleaning. Gleaning was to go out into a field after the reapers had gone through and to pick up all of the fallen grain, all of the leftovers that had been left there. And so there were laws for field owners at that time to to allow for gleaning. They were not supposed to harvest quite everything. Anything that, that, that fell on the ground, they were supposed to leave for the less fortunate gleaners to come through and to have a means of, of just simply a basic meal. They weren't to harvest the corners of their fields for the same reason. It was provision for the needy. Ruth knows that they need to eat. Ruth then goes out and she begins to glean in the fields. And whose field does she end up going to? The field of Boaz. Now, some would say it's happen chance. Some would say that's a stroke of good luck. What fortune she had. Some people might say it was karma for sticking with Naomi. But the scriptures tell us clearly, they reveal that this is God's providence. That he's behind all of this. That it is deliberate and it's ordained by him. It's not karma. It's not karma for for her doing good to to Naomi. Karma involves an impersonal concept. But what we have here is a personal, almighty God overseeing all things who brings these events together, who brings these two people together here. His providence isn't over just the sweeping moments of history. It's also over our ordinary lives. And like a master weaver at a loom, God takes these individual threads of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and he begins to to form and weave them together to form a beautiful tapestry of redemption in the end. And last week we looked at the characters. We looked at Ruth and Naomi and the Lord. We're going to do the same thing here this morning. We're going to continue to see how these characters, these four characters now, are all woven together together. 
in this unseen way. And first, we want to look at Boaz. Boaz is a man of God's covenant faithfulness, but he's also the means of God's covenant faithfulness. He's the man and the means that God's using. Now, we talk about covenant faithfulness. It's something we talked about last week, about the, 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 the covenantal faithfulness that, Naomi, that Ruth had for Naomi. Um, and it is, uh, the idea here is kindness. It's love. It's loyalty all wrapped together. It's more of a concept. There's not really just one simple word that you can say, that's what covenantal faithfulness is. But it's all of these ideas together. It's a commitment to promise. It's lovingly doing good also by that promise. Covenantal faithfulness is exemplified then by our triune God, who himself, as we said last week, is a covenantal God at his very, very heart, at his very core of being being one God, but yet three persons, the three of them covenanting with one another to redeem humanity even before the creation of the world. God is a covenantal God, and he is perfectly loyal to his covenants. He oversees them with his steadfast love. Boaz is also a man who exhibits a covenantal faithfulness. Because when we first meet him, he stands out immediately. Right? He walks into the... Well, first of all, we, we find out in verse 1, it says that he's a worthy man. He's a reputable man. He's a, he's a man in the town of Bethlehem of a certain influence. But it's not influenced by strength or power or might. It's influence by his piety, by his kindness, by his love. And he, he gets into the field, he sees his workers, and he blesses them as he sees them there. The Lord be with you. He doesn't see them as tools. He doesn't see them as, as a way of economic gain. He sees them as fellow people in God's covenant community. And they obviously know his love and they see his love. They see his covenantal faithfulness and they respect him for it. They respond in turn. Well, the, the Lord bless you, Boaz. What a beautiful relationship they have. Because there's covenantal faithfulness that's at the foundation. And this is what oozes from Boaz. It is the atmosphere all around him if you were to meet him. But it's also the atmosphere that he breathes in. Because he knows the goodness of the Lord. He knows God's covenantal faithfulness and it fills him. It overflows from him to others then. He is a man who's well acquainted with the covenantal faithfulness that the Lord God had to Israel. He's a man who lives by it. So then when he notices Ruth that morning gleaning in the fields, of course we would expect him to regard her in the same way. He tells her, he tells her to go glean in the fields. Keep it up. It's okay. I've heard of you. Don't leave. Don't go to any other field. Stay in my field. But also stick with the, the young women that I have that are going in the field. Now, there were provisions for gleaners in the law at this time, but we all know that laws don't give guarantees. Gleaners could be intimidated. Gleaners could be abused, all for the sake of a farmer wanting to keep a little bit more profits in his pocket. But Boaz says, no, keep close to my young women. In verse 8, he says that. He's keeping her status as an insider here. He's giving her protection as she's in the field. I don't want anyone 
to disallow you from coming in. And then later, he also allows her to glean among the sheaves. Normally, the gleaners would go after they had gathered all of the sheaves together and they were to go in the other areas of the field. But he says, no, why don't you actually go in where they're gathering the sheaves? In fact, that that would mean that, that she would be the first of the gleaners to go through. She would be favored among the gleaners, getting the first pass before anyone else would. And in this remarkable way, too, of his generosity, Boaz even tells his workers to pull out some of the stalks of grain from the sheaves for her to pick up also. Boaz gives her this abundant provision of well above and beyond what was expected, and she gathers in what, and, and, but, but when she threshes it out, it's an ephah of grain, which that is three-fifths of a bushel, or you think about this, a 30-pound bag of grain. That is a substantial amount just in one day there. And then he gives her drink. He gives her water that's drawn by the workers. In fact, when normally water would be drawn in a situation like this by foreigners and by women, both of which Ruth was. He gives her food. He shares lunch with her. He invites her to come and to to eat with him and the rest of the workers there. And he even gives her leftovers. See, Boaz treats her with this incredible compassion Incredible honor. As he looks at Ruth, he doesn't see a Moabite. He doesn't see a foreigner. He doesn't see someone, a stranger to the, to the promises. He sees a person. He sees a person. And moreover, he sees someone who has recently come into covenant fellowship with the Lord God. Boaz knows her story. He wants her to know what it means to be under the shadow of the wings of, of the Lord. If God's people don't show covenant faithfulness to one another, then how will outsiders then know God's good, the goodness of God's covenantal faithfulness firsthand and of a community that is formed by this sort of covenantal faithfulness? It's a concept that can't just be read about. It's also a concept that is to be received. Boaz is a man full of this covenant faithfulness, and he's a man used by the Lord to demonstrate the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Because it's not just Boaz at work here. God is using him as a means to show his faithfulness to Ruth and to Naomi. In verse 12, Boaz says, The Lord repay you for what you've done. In other words, he says, you've, I know that you've come to the Lord and that you have identified yourself with his people. I know that you have put aside your Moabite heritage. I know that you have, have chosen faithfulness to Naomi and that you have taken on the Lord God as, our, as your God. Our God is your God now and he now is caring for you in return as one of his people by faith. You're no different. You're one of us. See, God never abandons his people. He never leaves his people. He takes care of his faithful ones. This is what it means to come under the the wings of the Lord as his refuge. Wouldn't it be great to know a man like Boaz? Wouldn't it be wonderful to have someone like that as your partner or friend? Wouldn't it be beautiful to have someone close to us like Boaz? To receive the love and the steadfast faithfulness of someone like him? You can. Jesus, the greater Boaz. 
Boaz is only a shadow of the covenantal faithfulness and the goodness of Jesus. The true God-man of the Lord's perfect covenantal faithfulness. The covenantal faithfulness of the Lord God embodied in humanity and showing perfect covenantal faithfulness to us. See, what Boaz did for Ruth is only a shadow of how Jesus treats his people with compassion, with honor, with dignity, without regard to having Moabite heritage. Jesus looks at you and says, it's not because of what you have, it's not what you have put aside. It's not from wherever you came or whatever past you have. He says, I'm a, I'm a refuge for you to come and, uh, and to, to come under the shadow of my wings here. He gives abundantly, like Boaz. He's not stingy. In fact, his generosity overshadows Boaz's generosity. He gives himself. He gives himself to us in our times of need. He gave himself at the cross. And now he doesn't just stop there, but he also gives the spirit, the one who is never... Who, who is always with us, who will never leave us or forsake us. The one who is, who is, is the, um, the down payment of the redemption of God for us. Jesus continues to give gifts in overabundance, overflowing. He gives satisfaction. He gives joy. He's the one who God sent to preserve us and to keep us. Naomi and Ruth would have starved They would have died without Boaz. And without Jesus, we would have nothing but death. So we look at the Lord, or we look at Boaz as one of the characters, but we need to say also second, the Lord God. He's working in his providence. It's his work and his ordering in all of this. He's the one who writes the story. The Lord uses Boaz as his means. Boaz's kindness is the Lord's covenantal faithfulness. He shows his covenant faithfulness to Naomi and Ruth. It's the Lord's provision. It's the Lord's care that he has. God's in the background here working quietly throughout this whole time. Never once did he leave Ruth or Naomi on their own. He was true to his commitments to them and to his people. And it's interesting because he uses an ordinary man like Boaz as the means of his provision. And all we know about Boaz is from the book of Ruth. There's no, there's no historical records that we have outside of what Scripture tells us. Uh, the, he evidently was not some extraordinary man in history, as, at, at least in, in the ways that the world would define an extraordinary man. He was a respected farmer in a small town 3,000 years ago. An ordinary person. But an ordinary person, though, used by God in some very ordinary moments. As ordinary as checking on his fields that morning. You think Boaz that morning as he was drinking his coffee and looking at the farmer's almanac, getting ready to go out into his fields. Do you think he knew what was going to happen later in that day? Do you think he knew what was providentially about to be put before him? But, but there it was God's providence that he put Boaz together with Ruth and Naomi for the greater story of redemption. Which will point us to a true redeemer. Ordinary people, ordinary moments, why can't he use you? Your life is under God's providence. There's nothing happens randomly, nothing happens apart from his ordering. 
does it occur to us that he places us where we are with the people that we're with there in that time because, of, because that's where he wants us to be? Because he's providentially putting us there for his purposes and his purposes exceeding our own purposes? I'm talking about more than just your neighbors. I mean the conversations that you have in ordinary life. The people that maybe you're sitting next to or are, are, that you see at a coffee shop. The people who are on your floor at Friends View. See, a God like this who weaves these stories together is a God of incredible wonder. How wonderful that even the most basic moments here of life are of his providence. Even the times where you run into conflicts, those are his providence. The times when your conflicts involve your kids, that's his providence. The times that you run late, that's his providence. The times that you burn dinner or your dinner is burnt, that's God's providence. And his providence is ordered for our good. And we have to define what that means. What is our good? Well, our good, as God defines it, is growing into the image of Christ. It's him working faith in us. He uses the ordinary moments, the ordinary people, those times in his providence to be at work in us, to turn us into the image of Christ and to work that faith in us. And a God who does this sort of thing, a God that provokes this sort of wonder is certainly worthy of our faith, isn't he? When God orders our lives, it's not merely for our physical provision. He does so to teach us about himself. And that's what, how he used Boaz. He used Boaz to teach Ruth and Naomi. And that's what we want to look for our last two characters here. We're going to look at Ruth and Naomi and what both of them learned about the Lord God in these times. Ruth learned about the Lord and his covenant faithfulness. And this is important because Ruth is a Moabite. She's an outsider by, by human nature. She's just moved into Israel with Naomi. In fact, she may have been there only days. She's just left the Moabite gods. She has just taken on Yahweh the Lord as her God, and her understanding would have been pretty minimal of who God is. And so what does an outsider know about the Lord? Well, they, she knows that he's a God of covenantal faithfulness, but what does that mean? She knows that he's one who cares for his people, or at least that's what she's heard anyways. Maybe even heard from Naomi, but Naomi doesn't seem to have the deepest theology at this point right here. But the Lord, though, uses Boaz to show her firsthand how he provides and how he cares for them. Verse 12, again, Boaz says, you've come to take refuge under the Lord's wings. And he doesn't turn away those who come to him in desperate need. He looks upon them favorably. He delivers them in a, with abundance and gives them what they require. His goodness, there was literally being heaped into her lap at lunchtime while they ate. It was literally being picked up from the ground as she gleaned. It, her, his goodness was refreshing as she drank water from the, from the wells that was drawn for her. The first thing that she learns about the Lord is this, his actions of care from his people. Showing her loving care, that's God's provision right there. He looks after his people. 
His covenant faithfulness is inexhaustible for his people, no matter where they come from, no matter how new in the faith or how old of the faith that they've been a part. None of it is earned. He's a gracious refuge for foreigners, for widows, for the desperate. The steadfast community or the steadfast covenant love for a Moabite, an outsider here, brought into the inside of the covenant community and given refuge, where her Moabite heritage didn't matter at all. What did matter? Her faith. Boaz gave her equal status to his workers, eating from the same meal, gleaning with his young women at that time, just like she was part of the community. Because she was. Because it was a community that was formed by faith. And God used Boaz to teach her how he shows covenant faithfulness and loving regard for his people. He used Boaz to show us his character. And like Boaz, Jesus, the greater Boaz, reveals God's character in even more lavish ways. He takes outsiders and he makes them insiders to the covenant. Heritage, background, past life, none of that matters in the covenant community. What matters, the only thing that matters, the only thing that defines you if you are in the covenant community there is the love of your covenant God. It's a community that is formed by God's grace. Everyone there is by grace. There's no other way to be a part of it and to live in that than grace. You see, that means also that no one is in a better or worse position there. There's no inequality in how God regards and that means there also not to be no inequality for how we regard one another as fellow people in the covenant community, as brothers, as sisters. The refuge of God looks like Jesus. It looks like the welcome and the care that he gives to us. That's what the incarnation is. The incarnation was him entering the world to draw us into his embrace, not for us to go to him, but for him to come to us and for him to keep us in both body and soul. But we don't just have Ruth. Last, we also have Naomi. Naomi also learned something very deep about the Lord God, too. She learned that a moment in God's providence doesn't have the final say. That that one moment for her, or that season of God's providence there, didn't have the final say. That's very true. There was a series of events in her life where God's providence had been extraordinarily bitter. She lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her two daughters, sons. Uh, she uh, was, had to go back to Israel, probably in shame. She had disappointment. She had desperation. But honing in on that moment, though, of her life, doesn't tell us everything about God, does it? That's not everything. That's not all part of her story. In fact, none of us reads a, a normal story this way. None of us reads a story just through the lens of one section of that story and says that's what it's all about. No one reads the book The Lord of the Rings and focuses on the mustard armies surrounded by orcs at Mordor's gate as they are overwhelmed Meanwhile, Frodo losing the ring to Gollum. No one just reads that part and says, this is a hopeless story. Because that's only one moment in the whole arc of the story, isn't it? The story is ultimately about redemption. 
and victory. And just looking at that one moment, that doesn't tell us everything about God's providence for us. It doesn't tell us all about God himself either. And that may be easy for us to say, but it might be quite different in the moment. Especially if it's a season of of deep loss or incredible disappointment or immense suffering. But we need to remember that the story has been written, though. The story of God's providence ultimately ends with Jesus being raised, with Jesus setting everything right, and us raised with him, sitting around a feast with our glasses raised. If Naomi's story was finished at the end of chapter 1, then her life would have been hopeless. But God, in his providence, wasn't finished. Her season of bitterness wasn't everything. She and we also begin to understand that a moment in life, that a season in life, that part, this one moment of God's providence isn't the whole entire story that he has for us. Because we're talking about a God of covenant faithfulness to his people. And Naomi begins to learn that anew as, she, as he slowly begins to stem the tide of bitterness in favor of blessing. And yet blessing is more than just gain. It's what she gains. She gains a new awareness of God, an invigorated faith in him and his forgiving grace in our disobedience. Little by little, she, be- she comes to a new and better understanding of God. In verse 20, and she learns of Boaz, may he be blessed by the Lord and the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. That's a confession a confession of faith, and what a confession it is for Naomi. How different it was than before when, we've, when we read of Naomi before. Last week when she said, the hand of the Lord God is upon me, and she considered herself cursed, and she said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, call me bitter, because the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. He's not a God who forsakes his people. That's covenant faithfulness. Despite what his providence had for her, that wasn't everything. She has a new confession of faith. A confession of trust that she hadn't before. And through all of this, she even learns a little more about right and wrong. She recognizes that going to Moab was wrong. That disobedience, that was an act of disobedience and distrust in the Lord's providence. Why did they leave in the first place? Why did Naomi and Elimelech leave in the first place? Why did they have her, their sons marry Moabite daughters? It was to secure a future. When what they should have done was, being, was staying put in the land and resting in God's refuge and care. Yet now as she returns, God's wrath, she realized, doesn't burn against her. He shows faithfulness. There's forgiveness even for that. God's providence follows a trajectory for our good. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to be wonderful. All we need to do is look at the cross. The cross is is God's providence. The the cross was immense suffering for for Jesus Christ, though, but the trajectory, though, is for our good because why did Jesus suffer and die? For us, for our sake, for renewal for us, for forgiveness, his death for our life. The trajectory is for our good, 
It's for our knowing God and for growing into his image. Because after all, as, as Paul writes, suffering produces character. And we also do it to rest in him until the day of completion. That's why the Apostle Paul could be, could be content in his suffering. Because Jesus is raised. Because Jesus is raised is why we can be confident in the trajectory of good. Because in him, we are raised. In him, his covenantal faithfulness endures forever. And the story of the world, the story of Naomi and Ruth, the story for you in Jesus Christ isn't one of suffering, but ultimately of resurrection and redemption. God weaves a beautiful tapestry that we see here. The stories interconnected with one another here. Brought together by the Lord, the master weaver in his providence. All of it according to his plan. To make something beautiful. And he weaves our stories together into his as well. The final thread, the one that's woven among them all here, the key thread, the one that keeps it all together is Jesus Christ. Our threads are woven together in a way that will hold as they're woven tightly around him. Our stories are woven together with the divine beauty as they are woven intricately around him. Let's pray. Lord, there are times, just as there was for Naomi and for Ruth, where your providence seems bitter to us. But yet, meanwhile, what is the hope that we have? The hope is that Jesus has been raised and that your providence continues for us, for our good. Shape us into people of faith, trusting in you no matter the time, knowing how the story ends, maybe not always knowing how we get there, but knowing, though, in the end, that your goodness and faithfulness comes to us in the resurrection and return of Jesus. Let us see Jesus as the one who is full of covenantal faithfulness for us, who gives abundantly, who does not leave us or forsake us, the one who is up to his, doing his good work within us by the Spirit. Keep us, remind us of that in these days when they grow long and when the night is thick. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.